Hey everyone, uh, welcome to new Tim and John show and today we have the pleasure of having another Tim on the show and uh, this uh, is going to be treat again, you know, we have so many great people that we've had on lately, we have a Jim Control, Jadver Griffin, uh, we've had, uh, you know, many other fantastic people on, uh, so uh, and uh, it's only fitting that we have, you know, a fellow Canadian on here. Uh, you know, this is, you know, a, a lot of Americans on our show. So today we're going to have the pleasure of talking to Tim Moen. He is the leader of the Libertarian Party of Canada since 2014 when he popularized the campaign slogan, I, win, I want gay uh, married couples to protect their marijuana uh, plants with guns, uh, which is, you know, perfect uh, fitting of, you know, what uh, Tim stands for. Uh, Tim lives in currently in Edmonton, Alberta, with his wife Tina. The uh, you know I had the pleasure to meet your wife as well, Tim, when we were down in Acapulco one year, uh, and they have four grown kids. So welcome to the show, Tim. I'm happy to it, it, happy to be here, and uh, you know I'm uh, I'm not sure I'm a fantastic guest or not, but uh, I am Tim. I am from Canada. I'm the I'm the Canadian Tim. I'm the one can one Tim we have up here. So that's how you just ask anyone in Canada. If they know Tim and they'll point to me. Yeah, yeah exactly. And it's, it's funny with your tagline because the first actual, um, you know, logo that I had, if I actually, let's see if you guys can see this, but I have a porcupine. So the libertarian, sim actually the other people can't see this now. So we, I've got the porcupine, which is obviously the libertarian symbol, the, uh, you know, rainbow colored hair, which is, you know, sort of, you know, the ode to the LGBT community, the Ron Paul Revolution logo with a uh, joint in his ear and an AR-15. So, you know, basically I was trying to nice. take your slogan and, uh, you know, put it into a logo and that's, uh, but I didn't, I didn't know that that was your, uh, that was your uh, running platform. I know a few other yeah. things, but uh, yeah, I'm, for I'm right sure. With you yeah. No. And, and in all fairness, um, I, I think Austin Peterson actually originally coined that uh, slogan. Uh, I just found a random meme on the internet back in 2014. It wasn't ascribed to anyone. And I, I made it my campaign slogan. I found out later, I think Austin Peterson came up with that meme. And uh, so I guess you could credit me with popularizing the phrase because uh, it went viral. It went around the world, uh, got me on Fox News and CNN and uh, it started to become popular after that. But uh, I think Austin Peterson gets the credit for coming up with that slogan. He's a pretty, uh, pretty sharp marketer. Yeah, sharp marketer. Unfortunately, you know, he, him and I sort of went the opposite directions where I was like super, super pro Trump in 2016, mainly because I was pissed off with the Libertarian Party. Maybe this is a good segue because I was here you are you know, in 2012 said I would never vote for a Republican again after they uh, railroaded Ron Paul. And then, you know, I see in 2016, we have Gary Johnson and Bill Weld and Bill Weld's talking about how handguns are more dangerous than AR-15s and AR-15s are super dangerous and we need to get AR-15s and handguns off the street. And I'm like, come on, if we can't even have the Libertarian Party candidate talking about, you know, preserving my, you know, Second Amendment right, then what good are you? So I decided, you know what, at least Trump, you know, at the time, you know, was talking a good game. He was talking about, you know, auditing the Fed and, you know, there was things in 20, you know, it wasn't, uh, uh, you know, part of the CFR, wasn't part of Goldman Sachs. I'm like, you know, I'll give him a shot. And so I went, you know, hardcore into Trump. Then like as soon as he got elected and I was on his ass for every bad thing he was doing and there's no shortage of bad things that he was up to. And then Austin Peterson, you know, went from running for the Libertarian Party to then, you know, being super pro Trump. So we like, we sort of flip flopped yeah. the exact opposite, whereas I would have been a lot more popular if I, you know, stuck with that approach. But, you know, I, I just couldn't philosophically support, you know, uh, having the debt go up by more than Obama. And, and I actually called it on video saying that Obama, that Trump would raise the debt more in eight years 
uh, than Obama would. And then he's now done it in four years. So he even beat my expectations. So sorry for that intro. But I'm sure uh, no, no. I, I mean, look, you, I think you, you went the right way. Um, you know, Trump had some promise. He was saying some libertarian things, making some anti-war noises. Um, and it turned out that he was, he was a swamp creature just like everyone else. And he was all talk. And uh, yeah, he, he raised the debt to unprecedented numbers. Uh, the left grew out of control under him as a reaction against him. And, um, you know, so he, he didn't even stop that. I'm not sure how much of the wall he built um, if you're into walls, but uh, yeah, you know, uh, I, I share your, him. I share your lack of enthusiasm for, for the Johnson and Weld ticket. I, I did learn though, from, uh, from Bill Weld that if I pull a, pin or something out of my AR-15, I can turn it into a fully automatic machine yeah. gun. So I thanked him for that tip, but uh, I didn't know that before. But Yeah. And it's like, we're not even asking for that much. Yeah, it, and, and, and like this go around, I was a delegate for the Libertarian Party and then didn't even vote for the Libertarian Party candidate because we just have like these like nonstop string of milk toast candidates. And like, we're in a situation with Everything is going crazy. The debt is absolutely exploded. You know, there's never been more authoritarianism than basically, I mean, I would say more, but, you know, I mean, this is pretty much uh, certainly in our lifetimes about as authoritarian as it's ever gotten. It's only getting worse. And then, you know, in, in America, we want to run like, oh, let's just, you know, strengthen the government a tiny bit and let's just play nice. And if we're trying to act more liberal than the Democrats and maybe we can get on Rachel Maddow show and we can. And, and so what are you guys doing up in Canada that's different than like the Nick Starwark type approach? I know he's not, you know, ahead of it anymore. But, you know, it seems like in America we had this mamsy pamsy. Let's just try to, you know, out left the left on a bunch of things. And so it seems like the average rank and file libertarian party person is pretty good. But then once you get up to the, you know, the delegate, which, you know, I was a delegate. Then once you get up to, you know, that type of level, it's more of these like isolated echo chamber, country club, libertarian, a bunch of 70 year olds who have no idea. And we're just like, oh, yeah, if we just elect a woman this time, you know, that will get us all the media attention that we need. Yeah. And, and, and so it's just, in my opinion, I think the complete wrong message. And I just want to see like, kind of where you stand on the Libertarian Party in Canada and how you guys differ than what's going down here in America. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's it's a little easier for us up here, I think, because basically, you know, I'm the leader of the party and uh, it, it differs, you know, I, I, I share some of the same functions as your chair might share, you know, in terms of administrative functions, but I'm also the public face of the party. And so, and, and I'm expected to run for prime minister, essentially, uh, come election time. So, um, you know, it would be like having your, your prime minister. No, be <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so, you know, what, what I say essentially becomes a de facto sort of message of the party. And so I can adapt on the fly. And my message hasn't always been great. I don't think, you know, I, I ran a pretty milk toast campaign in 2015. Um, you know, we, we went with a 15% flat tax and like, we kind of took the approach of what could we realistically do in four, a four year term of government? How much could we whittle the state down? And we kind of put that out as our platform. Um, and I was informed, you know, one of the things that happens is as soon as you become leader or chairman or something like that, you get all these political operatives come out of the, the woodwork who you've never seen before. And they, they're like, we're going to help take you to the top kid. And we're going to help you out here with messaging and all this sort of thing. And they start suggesting these milquetoast strategies to you of while you can't be too radical, you have to like tone the message down. You have to, and it sounds all sorts of plausible, uh, 
to, to a guy who's never been in politics before. Yeah. yeah. I've never ran a campaign. I don't know. You know, yeah, it's pretty uncomfortable saying radical things. So yeah, maybe if I say something reasonable sounding, I can hook them in a little bit and then they can get more radical once they get in. That seems like a, it seemed like a reasonable idea at the time, but you realize um, that look, you're not going to win any votes. First of all, it, it's delusional to think that as a libertarian, you're going to win any elections anytime soon. Um, the, the population just doesn't want a libertarian in, in power. That's the, the reality. And so what we have to do is change culture uh, before anything happens. And then once culture's changed and the zeitgeist is libertarian, well, guess what? All the mainstream parties are going to adopt our platform anyways. And we're still not going to get in because they're, they're the big money machine. So they're going to have, but they're going to have a better platform form now because the culture is going to demand it. So I, 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 since that, uh, since 2015, I've been really focused on, and, and also seeing how Gary Johnson did and Bill Well did, you know, I was very curious to see how they're going to do. I was at the convention when they were elected and I was like, okay, let's see how they do. Maybe because if, if they do really well, if, if they're lighting the world on fire, I'm going to have to pay more attention to these pragmatists that are whispering in my ear about toning down the message and everything else. But of course, they did, they weren't exactly world burners. You know, they got a respectable respectable number of votes. Um, but I didn't see those votes uh, come back this this time around for Joe Jorgensen, even though she was a fairly principled Harry Brown libertarian, as far as I could tell. Um, you know, she had some unfortunate messaging mishaps and different things. But I think as a as a libertarian, she's she was the first um, principled candidate I've seen out of that party since uh, maybe Harry Brown, and. Um, she, you know, she didn't exactly set the world on fire uh, either. So all all those libertarians that Gary Johnson brought in were they disappeared. So they obviously were just there to third party vote. What we need is someone to change hearts and minds. We need a need someone to make more libertarians. That's what we need more than anything. So uh, so that's my approach. And that's our party's approach because it's my approach is, um, you know, I, I don't believe in pulling punches anymore. I just believe in, in um, you know, hardcore principle libertarian approaches. Yeah, we, taxation is theft. I'm not afraid to say it. We need to abolish the CRA. We need to abolish the central bank. We need to legalize all the drugs. We need to end the lockdowns. I don't care if the virus has 100% fatality rate immediately, we still need to end the lockdowns. Um, there's no restrictions on on liberty um, coming from my party. And, and I'm not going to soft sell it. There's just not enough time. We're losing our liberties at an unprecedented rate. And, um, you know, uh, people, I don't think people even want you to soft sell. I, I like the people, people are more receptive now than ever. So if there, there was ever a time to just lay your cards on the table and say, this is who we are, property rights, non-aggression. Uh, now's the time because people are ready for it. They're tired of the status quo and, and they're tired of the lockdowns. Yeah. And Trump didn't soft sell it. Trump, Trump wasn't going in there being, right. you know, Mr. Nice guy. He was there not pulling any punches yeah. right. you know, telling Hillary he'd put her in jail, being super hardcore. And, and I, and in 2016, I love that about him. I'm like, man, I'm like, that's the stuff I would say if I was up there. Like, I can't believe he's actually saying that, but you have to then back yeah. it up with actual real actions, not just, be oh it's just, right i'm, yeah. I'm never going to sign another out of control bloated budget again even though the republicans controlled everything in 2017 and then uh then he goes like call for 2000 instead of 900 right now too yeah. and he's like oh, and, I, and I mean funny when aoc actually agrees with him and as a libertarian, you might be able to say, like, you know, when Ron Paul ran, again, he didn't pull punches either, right? He just, you know, called it as he saw it. Like, these are principles. Yeah, we're going to legalize heroin. How many people here are going to do it if we legalize it tomorrow? No one? 
That's what I thought. You know, we're going to bring all the troops home. In South Carolina, (laughs) same stage for saying that basically he would support the golden rule. So here he is, like in the Bible, saying he would support the golden rule and gets booed. Uh, I mean, again, it's selective and they can use shotgun mics to point at their own, you know, infiltrators who were in there. And I was at so- several of the different you know, events and saw all the uh, shenanigans. And that really woke me up to everything is seeing you go to a debate out here in you know, Mesa, Arizona, and all of a sudden, you know, the, the police are like pointing guns at us and saying, hey, you know, your ass is going to a free speech zone. Otherwise, you know, you're going to jail. And so I'm like, wait, you, you know, here we are just with the end of Fed sign. Now we have to go in a cage. Uh, so then that way, all the Mitt Romney supporters, like 50 of them can be behind the, the CNN cameras. And so, you know, to some extent, I mean, the police are getting what they deserve because, you know, they were there part and parcel allowing this to happen. And now you're seeing, you know, the pushback against the police, which also probably wouldn't be going on had their drugs been legalized because, you know, the police are in greater danger because, uh, you know, drugs are illegal. But it's just yeah. if there was ever a time to get hardcore, I mean, now was the time. I mean, we're well I meaning Ron Paul in 2012, there was still a chance and i'll say use the word you know save things you know very loosely whereas now like we're way beyond saving things it's yeah so you know and i did agree with that you know that i didn't you know vote for him but i did agree with the uh the adam kokesh messaging of having a controlled basically bankruptcy of of the empire and i thought that was but you know he then caved and was playing ball with sarwark and doing some other things mm-hmm. that uh and and he was the first person that i've ever I inter- ever interviewed was, was kokesh so i mean i do appreciate what he's up to but i was pushing for jacob hornberger and then the last go around of the delegate selection, I just, I knew he wasn't going to win, and I just voted for Vermin Supreme, and I'm like, screw it, this whole yeah. thing's a joke, anyways. Might as well vote for a joke <laughs> candidate just to put out the message that this whole thing's a joke. And I thought that that would have been a decent strategy, uh, but you know, having a milk toast messaging just seems like you know what is the fun in that? And and it's not even about having yeah. fun; it's about we are forced to wearing masks and, and then you've got the libertarian party talking about oh we can't meet here because you know we can't meet proper social distancing and like like f that like we don't like we're not yeah. you know if you're afraid go stay home and so it was just such a joke that you can't even have a libertarian party lead on these issues and i'm glad that you know you guys in canada or you know you it seem like you're doing you know a hell of a lot better job than here and now we've got sarwark's literal henchmen you know, that's that's uh, you know, his last name Henchman, <laughs> right, right. running the show. Now, I mean, I can't imagine he's any worse, but it seems like it's of the same trajectory of where things are going. And so, I mean, I didn't mention well, yeah, Jorgensen once. Yeah, John. Yeah, no, just an infiltration. You know, this happened to me when I run provincially the uh, the uh, Manitoba party here. They, they, you know, they, they have their games, they have their, you know, operatives that comes in, sneaks in and sabotages you. They got their hit pieces on you. They, they're ready to just stop you in the tracks. We tried to, you know, get our party off the ground by signature. So we got like 8,000 signatures. Well, then they said like, oh, we, t- we have to take up 4,000 signatures. So you're still under 5,000. Uh, you know, the uh, elections Manitoba. And, and then we just said, screw it. We're just going to run some people. And then, uh, you know, of course, that's when all the leeches comes in and then tries to, you know, be a part of the, the party. We had Bob Axworthy coming in, trying to become party leader of all things. Uh, and so I was gone for three weeks. Suddenly this guy's in his Lloyd Axworthy's brother. You, right. you know who that is. Probably yeah, yeah. Him. And, uh, yeah. And he tried to just take over the party to use it as you know a uh a, a money funnel for himself and his uh, corrupt political elitist uh, friends over mm. there at the liberal party uh so they've been known to try to yeah. sabotage you and stop you and, and that's what you said as well you know they come in and and you'll play very nicely with you and try to like convince you 
uh, they're very good at it. So they're very good at, you know, trying to convince you and go in a certain direction because they're like, yeah, you don't want to tread to, you know, you're going to totally devastate yourself if you, you know, go go too far out there. Uh, but that's what they want. They don't want anybody to step up and say, like, enough is enough. And, uh, you know, let's go for it. Because think about all the people that was just like, yeah, let's go into this lockdown, you know, and everything. And then they get mad at people for body slam people on the ice. Well, you kind of asked for it, didn't you? Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's fairly Machiavellian out there in the political realm. I, you know, I almost handed the party keys over to Maxime Bernier. That would have been a huge mistake. I think Maxime Bernier yeah. is a, was a Canadian MP who, um, who was very libertarian when he ran for leadership of the conservative party, he ran as essentially the libertarian candidate. Um, and he was pushing back against Kelly Leach's populism, which was, you know, we're going to, we, we need to have a screening, uh, of foreigners and all this stuff. And he pushed back against it. And then he decided um, when he left the conservatives that he was going to run as a populist with libertarian leanings. And he, you know, kind of adopted a lot of our, our old platform, our old milquetoast platform and, and added some populism in there. And, and that was kind of what, where he went, but we were talking about merging parties at one time because, you know, look, I, I blew my load in 2015. Like I, I, I cashed in my retirement funds, uh, quit my job. You know, I basically killed my career to, to run for prime minister, I believe in this cause. And I, I would have loved to hand things over to a guy like Bernier, who had some stature, who had, who follows Mises and Hayek, at least um, on paper. And, you know, but the first thing he asked me when we were talking about merging the two parties together was, how is the corporate, how, how is it incorporated? How is the party incorporated? You wanted articles of incorporation, then we found out later, well, you know, he's using it basically as a money funnel for to pay himself a wage and to, to keep his post political career afloat. And man, I would have killed the libertarian party. Oh, I would have, like you know, it would have been a disaster. I made a lot of bad decisions, bad moves in my, <laughs> my naivety as uh, you know, party leader over the years, that would have been the, the, the worst thing I could do, but yeah, that, that's how they get you. I mean, these politicians, these people that move in the political world, they're, they're very in it for themselves. What, what can I get out of it? And, yeah. um, you know, it, it's, uh, yeah, it's, you, you can't get away from those people. I, you know, I was, it was funny. I saw this, uh, sh have you seen this shopping cart test? Uh, people who it's like the uh, play on the trolley problem where, you know, it's, it's a litmus test for self-governing. If you, if you return your shopping cart to the buggy corral, um, you know, you, you're, can self-govern if you can't you're not capable yeah. of self-governing well I, my take on it was look if you don't return your shopping cart if you're not responsible enough to turn your shopping cart you're probably going to end up as a politician or, or operating in politics you're going to try to govern other people yeah. because it's those who can't govern themselves that want to govern other people and you see a lot of that in um when you enter the political realm, even in fringe parties like the Libertarian Party, where people are trying to establish a name for themselves and trying to get what they can off of you and and move on. So, yeah, it's yeah. it is, uh, you know, it's a dangerous world. Um, yeah. I think that's uh, one of the problems, uh, Tim, is, you know, you actually all of us here, we're anarcho-capitalists. And I think that's one of the problems is our, you know. Uh, our our trustworthiness with other people. We try to, you know, uh, uh, you know, at least make uh, give people a chance, you know, to be able to uh, do something and that, you know, has given uh, a lot of problems, but it also a lot of good because you learn a lot to read, read how people are and all, all that stuff. 
stuff. You know, I wanted to do some, uh, uh, you know, a little bit uh, about like your early years and how you actually, uh, you know, uh, you were a firefighter for many years and how did you actually become to uh, like an end up uh, into, you know, being a libertarian and an anarcho-capitalist in the first place? Yeah, well, I was so uh, probably... Oof. Oh man, it's been about 15, no, probably 16, 17 years ago. Uh, I was going through a, kind of a life crisis. I was going through a divorce and I, you know, I was raised in a very fundamentalist kind of Christian home and, and going through a divorce basically meant I was going to go to hell. And so I was looking for a loophole to get out of hell. So I just started reading a bunch of literature about how I might be wrong or how the, the you know, the religion of my childhood might, might not be hundred percent true or, you know, might be viewed differently or something like that. And so I went down a rabbit hole. I ended up, uh, finding Ayn Rand and Penn Jillette. And, uh, you know, I watched Penn Jillette's, um, uh, show bullshit, you know, and I, I got sucked yeah. into the the skeptic community. So they, these are people that were debunking the Loch Ness monster and aliens and, and all these other things. And, um, you know, Penn Jillette was a big skeptic. So I started watching the show bullshit um, to, I, I was there for the debunking of Loch Ness monster, but I stuck around for all the libertarian stuff. And I'm like, this stuff makes a lot of sense. And then of course, Ayn Rand, uh, kind of tipped me over the edge. Uh, and then I found free domain radio and Stefan Molyneux, like the early, early ones, like his first episodes. Um, and yeah. those ones turned me into an anarcho anarcho capitalist within a few months. Um, and so, and turned me very against political action. So for years and years, I went, you know, very, probably 10 years, I went to like political action and running for all that, that is antithetical, but it was, you know, someone in 2014 that said, look, um, they, they saw me cause I, I did some, uh, film work with Neil Young and Daryl Hannah when they came up to Fort McMurray, it's, it's the, uh, uh, oil sands region of Canada. So it's a, it was a geopolitical hotspot at the time. And so we had guys like Leo DiCaprio and all these Hollywood people coming up there to basically show how we're, we were destroying planet earth. And I, I didn't feel that way about my community. I was a big booster of the oil sands and, and the, the generosity and the environmental consciousness that was in my community and all the solutions they were coming up with. And so I would make it my, my mission with my, I had a side hustle. Every firefighter has a side hustle and mine was uh, video production. So I had a bunch of camera gear and, and I volunteered to go out with all these Hollywood stars and, and help them shoot whatever they want. But I, while I was there with them volunteering as a, as a cameraman, I, I would try to get them to point their cameras at things that I thought were great about my community and things that the oil sands I thought were making beautiful about the world. You know, like for example, when Neil Young was in town, uh, there was this carnival called Sustainable in town. It ran off the used cooking oil from, from the restaurants, had a solar powered stage. I thought, man, Neil, wouldn't it be great to get you on that solar powered stage in the middle of dirty oil country, singing a song powered by sunlight, you know, just the artist in me with the juxtaposition of here's Neil singing a song powered by sunlight in, in surrounded by dirty, you know, air quotes, dirty industry. Um, that, that would be a great shot for your film but of course he didn't want to show anything positive he just wanted to show the negative so i wrote this article and it got picked up by the huffington post and went viral and it had a lot of libertarian themes in it you know i talked about how neil sung son who's 36 year old and had cystic fibrosis he had a life expectancy of 16 years 
But because of all Neil's extra wealth, because of this nurse he could have uh, providing medical care for him around the clock, uh, he was able to keep his son alive and enjoying life and traveling around with his father. And, you know, I said that his son's health can be traced back in a causal chain of events to the dirty smokestacks of the industrial revolution. And so Neil is underlying, uh, you know, is undermining the very thing that is keeping his own flesh and blood son alive when he attacks uh, the people here digging energy out of the dirt and, and providing life sustaining energy to humans. And, um, you know, some libertarians noticed the tone in the, the message in, in my article and they looked me up and I guess they must've saw that I was a libertarian and I was appearing on different podcasts and uh, they try to convince me to run for office. And I'm like, no, I'll refer you to this article I wrote uh, last month about why voting and political action is immoral. I would never do that. I would ne never sully myself. Political action is antithetical to liberty. You're just encouraging the bastards by doing it. And uh, But they just kept bringing up Ron Paul over and over again. And eventually I just couldn't deny that, look, Ron Paul did more for liberty and our movement than anyone else. And he was a politician and he used his stage to get the message out. It wasn't that he was winning votes. It wasn't that he got elected uh, president. It wasn't even that he could get anything passed as a congressman. It was that he stood on a stage and had a wide audience and, and, you know, saved millions of souls from their dirty statism. Right. And, um, and, and so I'm like, yeah, well, I'm being silly here. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm like a typical ANCAP who thinks that politics is cooties. You get cooties on you just by standing on that stage. What, what is it? it? It, and some, and another ANCAP said, well, dude, like atheists don't preach in a church. And I'm like, actually, if you think that that mosque has harmful beliefs, and they invite you to speak there, why wouldn't you speak on that at that pulpit and try to disabuse people of their harmful belief system? Of course you would. So um, that, that was enough for me. I'm like, okay, there's a stage, there's a spotlight, there's an audience. They're all curious to hear what I have to say. And why wouldn't, if I take my principles and my message seriously, why wouldn't I stand on that stage? And why wouldn't I deliver that message? So that, that got me uh, into politics. I, I said, yes, okay, fine. I'll run in 2015. And then two days later, right at the start of 2014, my member of parliament resigned and I was thrown into a by-election. And that's where the meme came from. I want gay married couples to protect their marijuana plants with guns. And we, we put a bunch of them up against out there. I had no idea what I was doing. And then two months later, we had our party convention and I found myself running, uh, leading the Libertarian Party of Canada. So in six months, I went from writing an article explaining why voting is immoral to running for prime minister of Canada. It was a very surreal thing. And I, I certainly never... <laughs> Never had any ambition to be in politics at all. It was kind of a, an accident of opportunity and, and circumstance that wore me down. And I finally just said yes and relented. And here I am. Yeah, I almost think like one of the best strategies to run on would be to just tell everybody, listen, and I've thought about doing this. Listen, the whole thing's a sham. The whole thing's rigged. Uh, basically, don't even waste your time voting for me. And I know that basically yeah. Ernest Hancock did something similar, and he had the highest vote, third-party vote total in the country when he did that. And they're like, and then the Libertarian Party's like, how did you, Ernie, like, let us know your secrets. How'd you do it? And he's like, well, I told everybody not to vote. And they're like, oh, we're not doing that. <laughs> like, wait, the person that told yeah. everybody not to vote got the highest, got more votes That's than everybody funny. else. Yeah. And I think there is something, you know, truth, truthful to that. You know, if I, and I was thinking about just, you know, maybe trying to primary a congressperson. Yeah, it's, it's a silent, yeah. it's a silent majority, right? Like, think about how many people are never voting because they don't believe in it. They, they see through, you know, when I did 
little bit of campaigning here in Manitoba, you know, I went around and uh, people were fed up with both sides. There's like, but I, I can't see like how, how, how we're going to, you know, be able to change it. We just stop voting. Uh, and, and that's, you know, the people at least, you know, uh, get the ideas out there with candidates that are, you know, outspoken and, and not afraid of speaking their mind. And I think that's, you know, uh, if, yeah. if you're going to run next, uh, you know, election efforts, it's coming up pretty soon, I think, uh, with, with what it looks like uh, here in could Canada. Be. I think could be, that, could be this year, could be 2022. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now with that yeah. said, I mean, do you still think, you know, it's important to have libertarian candidates running in, in Canada or running in the U S or, you know, what's sort of your stance on, on all this? Because, you know, as you know, fellow anarchists, obviously the only sort of message I'd ever really support is one where someone's just calling the entire thing out as bullshit. And, and someone yeah. that says like, Hey, listen, like Ron Paul did, like, I'm not going to promise you anything. And there's going to be no special interest, no pork. <laughs> You know, I'm probably going to get nothing done, but I'm going to be, I mean, basically I'd want to only do it to be like a bull in the China shop just to piss everybody off. But, yeah, you know, that, but at least in America, though, exactly. that's very dangerous. I mean, you can end up dead. I mean, I've got, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, for people that actually try to change things, they're either going to try to, you know, ruin you or they plant stuff yeah. on your computer or they're just going to be, you know, IRS audits. And it's just when you're going against a deep state, have you, have you, you know, experienced anything like that where anyone trying to come after you or, or would that maybe be more uh or that maybe kind of strides and affect things and maybe make you more popular and so they it's better just to leave you alone you know uh it, it's not for the faint of heart i've been i've had my job threatened numerous times thought i was yeah uh, it, it is it's dangerous business standing up and having the courage to speak out and you know I, i'm lucky in a sense um you know because i i'm generally well liked even by the media like when they when they interview me they they i, I have a certain charm about me i i think that uh, they find refreshing and even people that don't agree with me or vehemently disagree with me um they, they stand up for me like there was there was a a, a cop shooting here in Canada that made national news. Uh, the the this guy shot I think three or four police officers in New Brunswick. I think it was back in 2014, and um, he had my meme on his page. That it was a meme that said, "I saw a movie once where only the cops and military had guns." It was called Schindler's List, and my face was on that meme, and my face was on national news and then the angle they were selling was libertarianism uh so you know encouraged or provoked this guy to gun down a bunch of cops yeah. and that was scary as hell for, for a while there you know my work was paying close tabs on me i was being told that i should just drop out of politics altogether and keep my head down just for the sake of my own job and um but the thing that saved me was that i had talked with a bunch of newspaper reporters in the in the by-election a couple months earlier and these are the same guys that came to me and said hey our our corporate masters are asking us to get an interview with you and get this angle on the story that they're running and um and and they they basically just took my press release which was very careful and sympathetic to the victims and um they regurgitated it so we were able to but you know, yeah. I mean, had I not been a lovable character, that could have been the end for old Tim. I could have been in the dustbin in history. I could have, you know, be <laughs> jobless, and who who knows At least what. That's so where it, they wanted you. That's yeah. where they wanted me. Some people for sure wanted me. So it, it's dangerous. But to to get to your question of do do I think it's valuable to have libertarian candidates? Yeah, because it's a missed opportunity if you don't people are looking at that political stage if you're not in there you're not you're not uh 
you're not, uh, you know, competing for the cultural message. And so I don't care if people vote for me. I, I do think that voting helps us get the message out a little bit because the more votes we get, the more credibility people, more people will listen to us. It's not about us getting into power, but it's kind of like, you know, sending a podcaster some money or something like that. But I often tell people, I said, you know, because they're like, uh, we, much as we love you, Tim, we can't vote for you. Uh, you know, uh, we can't have Trudeau as prime minister. And uh, so we have to vote, hold our nose and vote against Trudeau rather than vote for for you. And I said, okay, well, that's fine. Don't send me your vote. I'll take your money though. Like send me a donation. We can use that money to advertise our message, to get our eyeballs in front of more people to recruit more candidates. And so every, every riding that we have a candidate in is another opportunity to talk to local media, to talk to, to get the message out to people there and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, I just want to be very clear to candidates because quite often they come in like I did in 2014 and I'm like, libertarianism is the best idea. Like as soon as people hear it, they're going to be like, Oh yeah, light bulb, Liberty, duh. And they're going to vote for me and I'm going to get a huge number of votes. And then this, that never translates. You, you get a few percentage of the vote and you get, you feel demoralized because you put all this time, effort and money into running and you hardly got any votes. Um, but you know, what I tell people is look, this isn't about the votes. This is about the message. This is an opportunity to get out there. You know, if you want to start a podcast and do it that way, go do it that way. If you, if you have another uh, soapbox you can stand on and preach this message, do that. But if, if you're passionate about this message, if you think it's important that people hear it, and if you think it's important that we persuade as many people as possible to, to turn from their sinful statist ways and adopt the, the, the glory and salvation that is Liberty, um, then, you know, we have to get out there and preach the gospel. Maybe this is my fundamentalist Christian from childhood coming out in me, you know, I, I, I was groomed to be a pastor and now that I'm an atheist, I have to pre I still have to preach something. And so now, you know, I'm, I'm <laughs> preaching Liberty, but you know, I was always taught you go to the gates of hell and you preach there and you, you hate the sin and, and love the sinner. And those are the kind of principles I apply to, uh, how I try to spread the message here. And, and you don't pull any punches, you know, you don't, you don't tell people, um, you know, you know, you don't, you got to tell people the truth about hell. You got to point out the sins of statism and you got to point out, like, you can't soft sell this stuff because, you know, the, the, the um, society, Western civilization, the, our, our way of life is hanging in the balance right here. And um, we, we don't have time uh, we have to cut to the chase and, and and save as many people as we can. Yeah, exactly. And, and with you know COVID nineteen being used as you know the uh, the massive you know uh, overtaking of our freedoms uh, everywhere. And and I found an interesting thing about I listened to Jason Kenny. Uh, he's the premier of Alberta, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if yeah. I'm not mistaken, Tim. So well, what he said is that actually. Uh, Klaus Schwab had sent him a private copy of his book to <laughs> premiere. So I wonder, you know, like with looking at Pallister over here, you know, Pallister, if you listen, you know, you totalitarian uh, bastard, uh, you know, that they adopted this, uh, you know, COVID-19 great reset. Uh, uh, he, of course, has said, you know, no to it, but he's still implementing a lot because he's getting uh, he's getting shamed by the health uh, health community, uh, uh, you know, to push these uh, lockdown measures because it's not really coming per se from the, the political side too much. It's actually a lot from the health side of things. Uh, and Tim, you, you as being, you know, first responder and a father 
I don't know how much you see like of what's happening like behind the scenes at all or if, if you could tell us anything that you know uh, from your perspective on how you think about this whole pandemic thing. Yeah, when yeah. was the firefighter calendar coming out? You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, my firefighter calendar days are over. Um, <laughs> That's what I thought you said you, as, as your side hustle. I was going to make a joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I'm look, I, I'm on the front lines, and as is my wife, she's an ER nurse. I'm a paramedic, and um, so yeah, I'm seeing some, I'm seeing COVID cases um, on a fairly regular basis, face to face with them in the back of an ambulance in a confined space. Uh, I don't buy that the mask I put on my COVID patient is protecting me at all from them. Um, you know, they half of them don't know how to wear it properly. They're constantly touching their face. They're, uh, you know, and so I, I don't buy this idea that public masking is doing a hell of a lot to slow down the virus. Um, and, but I, I am fairly confident that my, my own PPE, um, you know, I have a form fit, like a, a fit tested mask and glass goggles and gown. And I'm pretty meticulous about donning and doffing. And so far I haven't caught it, even though I have these people basically sneezing in my face. Um, so, so I, I'm fairly confident I can protect myself. I'm not, and it doesn't scare me anyways. You know, it's, it's, uh, I, I haven't, uh, I haven't seen anyone intubated, let's say that, you know, but I don't, I don't go to ICUs. So, uh, I know there, there are some patients in the ICUs that are intubated, but I, I, um, you know, we're, we're certainly busy on the ambulance, but we're not busy because of we're overwhelmed with COVID cases and ERs aren't busy because of COVID cases. They're busy just because of a backlog of patients that we would regularly see people that are coming to emerge, um, you know, and a lot of these people are are it seems like like for the first month or so of lockdown uh, back in March or whenever it was when everyone was scared of this virus, like uh, it was the slowest I've ever seen it in years. Like people were just scared to come out of their homes. I had one guy who had snorted uh, crack, crystal meth, fentanyl, GHB, a couple other things. You had, you had Hunter Biden hiding up there. <laughs> yeah, I think that was his name, Hunter. Hunter Biden, and he, but he, he, I came at him like, I, you know, I want to help him here. You, you know, buddy, you, you snorted fentanyl. This isn't good. And he was giving me the sign of the cross, like I was a vampire. That he was gonna, he was more worried about getting COVID from me than he was about the fentanyl he just snorted. And that was pretty much typical of everyone. Like we had grannies who weren't calling because you know they had chest pain and atrial fibrillation and they needed to go, but you know they they were more scared of coronavirus. So I, it feels like we had a surge of calls after you know, everyone kind of relaxed a little bit because all these neglected health ailments that normally would have been looked after were starting to pile up. And it seems like it's, it's more of that type of thing than it is of uh, coronavirus, at least we're, we're at. And then the other thing that's slowing everything down and creating a backlog, of course, on top of the fact that healthcare is basically illegal in Canada, unless you're working for the state. Um, so we have an art, a huge artificial scarcity here uh, is that, you know, th this pandemic is a bureaucrat's wet dream. I mean, if you want to boss people around, if you want to write rules, if you think that you're the smartest guy in the room, and if everyone just followed your commandments, uh, everything would work out better. Well, this is the best time for you. Um, and we're getting new rules written every week, it seems new guidelines about what we have to do. And it's, it's, it takes us like five, 10 extra steps to treat a patient uh, that you know, more than normal. And 
So it's taken us forever to get through just a normal patient because of all the extra steps we have to go. So, you know, one eMERGE I was at, they have these isolation rooms where they have uh, people who screen positive for COVID. So these aren't even people that necessarily have tested positive, although people that test positive go into these rooms as well. And they're very meticulous about donning and doffing. So you walk into this negative controlled pressure, negative pressure room, you don, and, and they actually have someone standing there watching. They have hired people to specifically watch you don and doff. And if you do anything wrong, they make you start again. And they like, that's their job is to make sure you're meticulous about not getting any virus on you and being, and then doffing when you leave and being very careful to, but then when the patient has to take a shit, they just get up out of their bed, walk out of the room, walk past 10 workstations, <laughs> go to the, the public washroom. And, you know, like th th these are the kinds of things that are happening. So some bureaucrat wrote this yeah, rule about donning and doffing and making sure everything's meticulous and they had it all worked out on paper. But when it comes to actually practicing these things in the real world, um, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of uh, flaws, let's just say. So, I mean, th this is the kind of thing. So you just imagine all the, the effort you have to go to to treat these patients patients by getting into all this PPE and following all these procedures, uh, only to have this germ bag walking around the hospital, touching stuff. And, you know, anyway, yeah, and, so, and so, so that, like in Elmwood hospital in New York, you basically had, you know, people that weren't a different you know, nurses and doctors or, you know, traipsing around from one room to another room and sort of like yeah. spreading it, even if they didn't already have it to begin with. And I had bought my first N95 masks, actually about 60 of them six years ago when Ebola was going around, which is and it's hmm. funny because I, I told the story, you know, a few times already, but and flying back from Anarchapoco, I decided to be a jerk to the TSA and so to get my TSA pre-check uh, global entry interview. And this was actually to get my, my TSA pre-check interview, like not even just like a regular coming back into the country. And I decided to throw on a mask back in early February just to be a jerk. And they were pissed at me for wearing a mask. And then I flew it back right. in July, not wearing one. And they were pissed. But the thing is, like, I know the <laughs> proper procedures that you have to wear, like in order to, you know, make sure it actually works. And you can't just willy nilly like, oh, I'm just going to wear this, you know, bullshit cloth. And then I'm going to, you know, throw it down in my car. And I'm going to put it down on the table. I'm going to crumple it up in my pocket. And it's going to, I'm going to use yeah. the same one for three months straight and i'm going to breathe it, it, it basically I mean, if you were to follow proper protocol you would probably need to change out your mask like constantly throughout the day and on and anytime mm -hmm. you leave have proper procedures and so now i'm getting lectured by people and i'm like well when's the first time you ever wore a mask oh oh april oh that's cute. oh just I bought them six years yeah, ago. Yeah. you know just just walk around you know I, i've been in hospitals i had like uh you know i've been in test labs where they work on anthrax and other things and you know like just watching people wear masks it's, it's pretty funny you know yeah, like I've they, I've got, I've got they, multiple gas masks. Like if there was an actual <laughs> pandemic going on, yeah, <laughs> you wouldn't be going around yeah. to Denny's having your, uh, you know, I'm not sure if you guys have Denny's up there, but you know, you wouldn't be going yep. out getting oh, breakfast, yeah. you know, you know, super scared, and then oh, well, now I'm sitting down four feet away from the hostess desk. Now I don't need to wear it. I mean, if there was an actual pandemic that was killing millions and millions and millions of people, yeah. you wouldn't be doing that. And then, do you know what they're running the PCR test? are like the cycle count thresholds up up where you're at because i know that's a big part of the scam yeah that here in alberta they're running it at 35. okay so basically we're we're up. even worse uh tim uh, tim i found out i i talked to a local test uh guy here and he said 45 which is even worse mm. and just so, so the yeah, listeners that's crazy. know yeah. what we're talking about is the the ct the cycle thresholds are basically how much they're amplifying yeah. these tests and so it's sort of like if we were to you know, uh, turn up the gain and the volume over here. And, and we're yeah. trying to say, okay, what's well, like a loud beep. And then it's like, beep, beep, 
but then we start. Or we you start, could start, catch up any noise. We start ratcheting that if you up, turn and all it high enough, you can make yeah. that little beep beep. You can make it sound like thunder <laughs> coming in. And so the more they amplify, maybe that's a bad analogy. But the more they amplify this, then the greater chance that it's going to test positive. And so if you amplify it, Fauci even said, I think it's. Uh, I forgot if he said thirty-five. Or I think it's at 30, thirty-five 33, at the high. Thirty. No, thirty-three. Yeah, of course, yeah anything over thirty-three, he said is useless. Yeah, of course it'd be thirty. Yeah. So there we go. Hey, Manitoba. <laughs> Oh, God. Uh, and Alberta. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, just so the listeners know, that yeah. cycle threshold, I mean, so we're not comparing apples to apples. So, I mean, it's one thing if everyone had 25 across the board or even 30 across the board. I mean, once yeah. you're at, you know, 35 and above, it's, you know, a completely useless test. Everyone's going to show up. And the fact that they just put in a whole bunch of, like, extra random stuff into the genome because they've never actually isolated yeah. the coronavirus. Well, we do have the worst numbers in Manitoba in Canada, so I guess it makes sense. <laughs> that we're at 45 it's interesting oh you guys have a level four lab there don't you yeah but you actually i drive by it every now and then uh it's uh yeah it's uh there's a lot of yeah. there's actually been a lot of talk about that it the 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 covid virus was worked on at our winnipeg lab and then it got sent over and released they have a lot uh, of nasty in, stuff in that yeah. lab there i know because i uh, i took my cbrn training in ottawa they talked they had people from that lab giving us uh, talk and uh, this was a course for first responders to deal with this was back in the anthrax days when yeah. all we were responding to white powder calls everywhere and there was there was uh, worry about nerve gas attacks and subways and different things like that they were training us all how to deal with these kind of attacks and uh they talked a lot about that uh, lab i was pretty surprised at some of the stuff they had in there and i won't well, actually have- Yeah, go ahead, Tim. You know, so being a firefighter, I mean, because I always see that the it seems like the police try to lump the firefighters and police into the exact same group, and I'm like, no, I don't have a problem with the firefighters. Like the firefighters aren't around going around shooting people and killing people left and right. And so I I see, you know, as a firefighter, I mean, I may be different in Canada, but it seems like there's like this big movement to sort of. It almost seems like the firefighters want it too, because then they can seem like, you know, hey, we can get out of speeding tickets and and so can our wives because we can play that card and we can be like all part of the same gang. But then it's also like then the police want to include the firefighters in their group because then uh, it's like, oh, you know, who doesn't like the firefighter? I mean, obviously everyone likes everyone likes firefighters. And so, I mean, do you see, you know, as a firefighter, do you? ever uh you know kind of resent the fact that people you know it seems like if anything the police are trying to lump themselves in with you guys to then make themselves seem more palpable to the general public if that question yeah I, I haven't really noticed i haven't really noticed a lot of that in canada at least um you know there is a pretty stark contrast between the three different disciplines for the most part between fire police ambulance and um yeah i mean we we aren't big fans of um well, put it this way, quite often when we ha- we're dealing with a difficult patient, maybe someone's having a psych- psychotic break or they're, they're having a mental health breakdown and we're talking to them, you know, it's, it's our general protocol that we call the police for safety. But, you know, quite often we, we pretty much have the situation in hand and the patient co- being cooperative and calm down and ready to get some help. And then the police come in and, you know, they're a hammer looking for a nail and things escalate and get ridiculous. And so, um, you know, we, yeah, there, there is, <laughs> there's definitely some of that. It's, um, there's definitely, you know, I think a lot of police I run into regret their career choice, put it that way, and wish they would have become firefighters instead. Because, uh, you know, like you say, it's we're, we're called uh, when there's 
property damage going on, it, you know, and it would be to um, help people. To, to help people. Yeah. And I mean, police are going out, out there looking for trouble, it seems. And, um, you know, so yeah, I, I think uh, there's definitely a huge um, difference in public perception. And I think police feel that and um, don't like it. And especially now, I mean, right now, uh, you know, we have police, Calgary police oh, took down a, a, tickets. a teenager uh, playing hockey. It was funny. These two, um, two female police officers trying to get this 21 year old kid. Who's, who's uh, a, like a high level hockey player. Like he played junior hockey. His brother made the big show. He's in the NHL and his other brother, I think is uh, on the cusp of making the NHL. So the, this, this is a hockey family and this guy is pretty solid on his States, probably been in a few fights on skates and these cops are trying to drag him down. And he's, he's not even really fighting them. He's just kind of like, what are you guys doing? And they're like kneeing him and, He's just looking at him, and finally he just kind of complies and goes down with them after they is threaten this, to tase him. But is this all on video? This is on video. Yeah, look up. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, Calgary, yes. Calgary um, hockey player taken down by police or something like that. Yeah, yeah you'll see it. It's uh, it, it's uh, it's quite the weird and funny. But some video Karen call, uh, called uh, called the cops on these kids because there was. Um, more than 15 of them out on this ice surface and this this kid just didn't want to move everyone else was off the ice so he was out there all alone now and he was refusing to comply he he was just like this is ridiculous Yeah, because he needs he needs to practice to be able to get into the nhl like his brother did so you gotta you gotta put in the effort (laughs) yeah you're not allowed by the government right so no it's uh it's really funny you know here too as well like there's uh they put in an extra 93 uh, security guards now to even give out tickets here in Manitoba. Damn, they even got, so yeah, I watched this, now they, the, got the, they got the taser on them and everything. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he, I mean, you know, to his credit, he didn't, well, I don't know if it's to his credit or not, but he didn't skate away across the ice. I mean, they wouldn't have been able to catch him if he just skated away from him. But he stood there, he's trying to reason with them, like, come on, guys, yeah. this is ridiculous. And they're just like barking at him, threatening to, and these two little females trying to take him down. It was kind of embarrassed. I felt embarrassed for him a little bit. But I mean, you know, they should have chose, they should have been firefighters. You know, they should have chose better, better careers, I guess. If you're a C student in high school, you know, you got two choices be a cop or a firefighter i D chose correctly a politician so. yeah that's right <laughs> and then, uh, and then, what, then what, what do they call the person that, that shows up in last place in in law school they, they uh if you're last in your class in law school you call them uh your honor a, your honor yeah, and joe bone joe biden come in last place uh, he, was, he was third to last at syracuse oh okay I'm so actually, I'm actually, president i'm actually front president yeah, elect actually, yeah, I'm actually, I'm from Syracuse, New York, and he went to Syracuse. So, like, I knew, like, all those stories. He almost got kicked out on several different occasions for uh, for uh, plagiarism. I think on, at least on three different occasions for plagiarism. Uh, right. Here, I'm watching the video. They finally take him down. But it would be funny if he did skate away. I mean, what would they say? We've got a, uh, a hockey player in Canada. <laughs> like, oh, sorry, we've got a white, a white hockey player in Canada. Oh, sorry, that only narrows it down to the entire population. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, especially that for you. And uh, but you you do know what the original uh, national sport of Canada was? Lacrosse. Yep, got it. Yeah. So yeah. because it's weird because not every a lot of people don't actually know that I'm I'm from like the, my yeah. hometown is like the lacrosse basically capital of the universe like my little 
30,000 hometown uh, Camillus, New York. Give a shout out over there. But uh, yeah, so I, I had known known that, but it was weird because it was, it was relatively recently. What, like 2006 or something? Canada made it as like a joint uh, lacrosse and, and uh, hockey. It was relatively recently. Whenever, uh, let me go look. Oh, up. really? I, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah I mean, lacrosse isn't all that popular up here, but uh, I know it originated yeah. here. I think it, I think the First Nations people played it or something like that in some places. And yeah, I was going to say Native Americans, but yeah, I mean, it was a you know, yeah. it was the Native Americans. It was called Bagataway, and it was sort of like a war game where they would go and right. have games that lasted. Uh, you know, basically, it was sort of like a war type thing. I'm trying to I'm trying to look up right now where when it became a national sport, but I believe. Hockey. I mean, we're, we're obviously getting into territory that probably nobody cares about, uh, unless our Canadian, unless our Canadian audience <laughs> listening to this. Well, but, yeah, we I got a bunch of Canadian uh, viewers, so they, they'll probably love it. You know. Yeah. Well, I, I'll tell you, as a Canadian, you know, I was digging Jorgensen's uh, hockey playing, whiskey drinking. Uh, you know that that bought me a lot of credit. It, it bought me a lot of forgiveness for some of her missteps there on social media. <laughs> uh, you know, the fact that she played hockey and drank whiskey that was uh, that was good. Good enough yeah, for me. Like, some Canadian love. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. No, hey, uh, Tim, I was, you know, back to a little bit of a more serious note because I, I came to think about, you know, where we're heading towards and we kind of like put out some warnings and so on. I, I'm wondering, you know, because of the attack, like talk a little bit about the attack on Alberta, really, that has happened over the last like five, six years now. Uh, and then I want to throw over that into one of my thoughts about where Can uh, Canada might uh, be, uh, you know, uh, moving towards. Uh, and then uh, I'd love to, you know, see. So if you could give people a little bit of an explanation what happened really in Alberta, sure. because, you know, oil prices went down. And as they did, the government was kicking you as you were laying down, basically. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, Alberta is fairly oil centric. It's kind of like the Texas of Canada, right? Um, yeah. A lot of rural folks, a lot of people who love freedom here, um, you know, and and oil is our big commodity, oil and ranching and beef and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I mean, we we've been under constant attack. I mean, I told you how I got into um, on the map in Canada by just standing up for my community for the oil sands because Hollywood continually came up here to attack. So we were under constant attack from the environmentalists and the Hollywood elite who, uh, who come here to slag our, our community. Uh, and then of course, you know, over the last, um, you know, five or well, five to eight years, we've had uh, a liberal left, le very leftist liberal government in nationally. And, and then we've also had an NDP, which are basically a socialist party provincially, which is odd. You wouldn't think a place like a Texas would, would vote for that kind of government. But we, we had, I think, over 50 or 60 years of conservative government here in Alberta, and it had just become so corrupt. And, uh, you know, they, they were spending so much. The Albertans just wanted to punish them. And they, they voted in the opposition, which was the NDP, which is basically socialist. Um, Actually, the leader of the NDP party here, Rachel Notley, I think she grew up with Jordan Peterson. And, um, you know, actually it was Rachel Notley's mom. I mean, this is a socialist family, the Notleys, uh, but they actually gave Jordan Peterson a copy of Ayn Rand's uh, book. So credit to them, I guess, for being at least really? uh, somewhat intellectually curious or honest or something like that about exploring different things. So they, they might be uh, one of the more educated uh, adversaries 
out there. But uh, yeah, Rich, between Rachel Notley and and um, you know the, this left wing government uh, federally, they you know they imposed all these regulations on uh, Alberta oil. Um, billions of dollars in capital investment fled the province as soon as Rachel Notley was uh, elected. And then on top of that, uh, the, the product that we do have, we can't get to market because uh, the BC government won't let us build a pipeline to, to Tidewater to ship our product out. Uh, Eastern Canada, Quebec won't let us build a pipeline out there to refineries and, and to there. So they ship in all their oil from Venezuela and Saudi Arabia all these conflict zones instead of Alberta, because Alberta is a dirty, rotten place to the rest of Canada. So there's there's a lot of Western alienation in Alberta and, and Western separatism, I would say, is at an all-time high. People in Alberta are tired of, because what happens in Canada is we have these things, have equalization payments. So our income tax uh, goes to the federal government. The federal government then divvies it up and sends it to provinces that are have not provinces. So they have a formula they work out. Manitoba the, is the, one big one. The, the, the richer provinces uh, don't get anything, and the the provinces that are basically socialist shit shitholes get are get these equalization payments. So there's like a steady stream of cash coming out of Alberta and going into these provinces like Quebec and BC that Manitoba. hate our guts. So they hate our guts and they take our money and then they won't even let us get our, our product out there. And, um, and so this has caused a lot of resentment and, you know, uh, separatist uh, movement. There's a new uh, federal party called the Maverick party that is, I think geared towards uh, Western separatism. So it'll be interesting to see, watch those boys go. Is that a separatism sort of like uh, succession or can you kind of. Yeah. Secession. Yeah. Secession. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they want uh, separate. They want to separate. From <laughs> yeah, there's Canada. actually there's a. I, I, I'm a part of a group on Discord called the Wexit uh, group. I, I don't know if you dealt with a lot of people in that yeah, movement yeah, as I'm... well. Uh, you know, I actually held a I I held a little bit of a presentation for them at one time about money and economics and what they should do because they were curious because they they were just thinking about implementing the same damn thing as you know we had. Uh, so I tried to like convince them a little bit in the right direction anyways. But, you know, from what you're saying, Tim, you know, being, in, you know, oil province and feeding, uh, you know, Canada's government basically around, uh, you know, I have a feeling that, you know, because the low oil prices, because of Canada's getting whacked, you know, I have a, a very horrible feeling that we're moving towards like almost like in Venezuela and, uh, type of moment because of our low oil prices that we're so dependent on. And then they're racking up it's a $400 billion in deficit this year, the federal government yeah. here in Canada. You know, th those type of numbers are really scary for somebody like us that understands a little bit of mm -hmm. economics and, you know, the ramifications that they're, you know, putting on the average taxpayer. You know, if, if anybody thinks that all this free money is going to, you know, uh, be like, hooray, you know, we got all this free money. And you don't think that it's going to be a, have severe ramifications coming online. You know, they, yeah. they're they totally ignorant about money and economics. So what what is your thoughts on, you know, Canada and, and that what I think could happen, you know, and almost like a Venezuelan like type of collapse? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. It's too hard to predict how things will play out. Of course, we know it's mathematically untenable um you're right they they're adding i mean i think the last i checked there was over three or four hundred thousand dollars worth of unfunded liabilities per citizen that that we're on the hook for 
at all levels of government in Canada. Um, and that that's unsustainable. And so oh, obviously rookie, they're going to be rookie numbers for, uh, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is, uh, you guys have them. Yeah. That that's, and that's fair. Uh, but of course we don't have the, the military you do to push, uh, people around and, and keep our yeah. dollar afloat. We're, we're, uh, you know, basically relying on goodwill here. And so, so, you know, we, yeah, I mean, our, our dollar is being devalued. We are printing money to do this. And on top of that in Canada, we have been handing out money like crazy. Like you guys have been putting up rookie numbers in terms of, uh, how, uh, of basically, uh, UBI payments to your citizens during lockdown, our federal government is handing out, I think it's $2,000 a month or more in CERB payments, CERB. I can't remember what it stands for. But it basically, you know, ever since a lot, since the pandemic uh, started, people have been getting, uh, you know, at least two thousand dollars a month from government. Anyone, and it's, you know, it's supposed to be for people who are unemployed. But most, almost anyone can go ahead and get this uh, money. Well, yeah, I actually have the numbers. And, and, and Let so, me just mention the numbers sure. there, Tim. Just one second, and it's actually eight. I have it up on my computer. It's very lucky, but it's eight point nine million people that uh, were unique applicants. So that is almost like a third of the Canadian population, but yeah. so continue. Sorry. Yeah, that's that's crazy. And so, just think about this. You know, I know, um, you know, my son's friend is has basically just he, he lives very frugally. He he he's got this two thousand dollars a month coming in. He hasn't had to work since March or even look for a job. He's just snowboarding and playing video games. And he's now chanting UBI, UBI. And there's a lot of Canadians that are doing that very thing. Um, you know, they're, they're seeing how beneficial a UBI could be for their lifestyle where they can just, um, you know, live their lifestyle, live very frugally and go snowboarding and play their video games and, and watch the TV. And uh, I mean, so it, it's not just that the economic factors that, that, we're talking about here. This is a cultural thing, a cultural shift that's occurring in Canada where uh, we are basically, you know, entrenching a welfare mentality in people uh, that, you know, they are, they're entitled to, to the money from others and they don't have to work at all for it and they can just live comfortably. And, you know, I, I'm really worried about that because, you know, so I, I think what we have now is probably one of the greatest uh, heists in history. It's a huge wealth transfer from, the the middle and lower classes to these rich oligarchs and and entrenching government power and um you know and then we had in there the great reset and all and the it's almost like programming to accept whatever the government will do right it's like there there is nothing outside the state now everything in the state nothing outside the state yeah. uh, seems to be the motto of almost everyone these days and and so they will accept literally anything the government is there to do everything for you it is giving you money to live right now so it's not you know so there are conspiracy theorists i know it's it, that that will tell you that okay this great reset they're gonna forgive your debts in exchange for you uh agreeing never to buy property again or something like that uh, i don't know if that's quite true but i will i could certainly see how um our property is going to be stripped from us how our debt is going to become untenable and how they're going to have to do something to wipe away our debt and and the devil's bargain that's going to come out of that is not going to be good it's it's not going to mean more property rights i mean the authors of this um great reset you know they wrote an article uh, it's 2030 
Uh, there's no, no, I own no property and have no privacy and I couldn't be happier. And so the world they, some of these people are envisioning is, is one that is right out of, uh, right out of a brave well, new world by Aldous Huxley, yeah. where, you know, you own nothing. And in fact, even in Aldous Huxley's world, uh, you didn't even own your own body, right? I mean, it was supposed to be there for the pleasure of the community, for the benefit of the community. And you can see that type of programming going on right now with how we're supposed to look at ourselves and look at everyone else else as a, a basically a threat to the community, right? Your body is only, we only care about it as it relates to the community. And that's its only worth. It's not a worth worthy thing in and of itself. And we saw this very clearly in Canada. There's a 90 year old lady who facing another round of restrictions where she couldn't see her loved ones or family voted for uh, assisted suicide, which our government was happy to provide them for. So our government would not let her see her family, but would happily facilitate her death for her. Um, and that is the kind of world we're living in. It's a, it's an anti-life, anti-human uh, culture that's being uh, well, instilled in us right now and where we're supposed to look at everyone else as germ bags and, um, and their value is not sacrosanct. It's how does it relate to the community? Is it a pro or a con to the community? And that's how we're supposed to view each other now through that it's, lens. It's funny how quickly the my body, my choice, how quickly that gets flipped around into, oh, well, not your body, your choice. If you don't want to get a vaccine, if you don't want to wear one of the masks or if you're going against yeah. anything, the political structure uh, doesn't want you going against. And all yeah. of a sudden, you know, same thing with like believe all women. So believe all women, unless you've got women doctors who are then, you know, experts in their field who are then providing a counter narrative to what's going on then don't believe them hey, so but believe cynthia freeland she knows she knows everything about economics here in canada so don't worry about it who is she like, your, like yeah, she, yeah. She, she she like she's our deputy prime, prime minister no. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's just insane like they uh they like to portray this like whole equality for everything but then there's a, a total lack of you know skill set or anything that has to do with it and then you'd be uh, if you call that out uh, you become, you know, bigoted or, or anything. Well, it's like it's that. completely patronizing, yeah. right? I mean, I remember when when yeah. Trudeau took office, and he he, because it was 2016, we had a gender balanced cabinet, right? 50% men, 50% women, because it's 2016. And I, my point was, well, why why would he limit it to 50% women? Why couldn't it be 90% women or 100% women? Like, yeah. why why would their genitals? And so obviously, like, uh, the, the way I look at the left is they are the, the most hideous, leftist, sexist, misogynist there are. The only, the, the, exactly. the only value these women, women have in Trudeau's eyes is what's between their legs and the fact that he can use them as objects of his virtue signaling. That's the only value any minority minority has that's the only value any people that he claims to care about have and and i i think about you know i think that's true of most of the left um who engages in identity politics they you know at least on the right a racist will be like uh you know i don't i see you as different i, I don't trust you I, I want you out it's honest it's naked it's it's right there it's it's disgusting yeah. too but yeah, it's he is but, a racist uh, but, exactly right but, but on the left they, they do the exact same thing they they separate everyone into groups according to their immutable characteristics and then um rather than looking distrustfully at them they look at them as little kids objects that can feed their ego and you know it's and it's so widespread on the left that you can barely find someone on the left that isn't a bloody racist 
bigoted uh, misogynist. It's it's yeah. uh, unbelievable, and and they're the ones that are crying racist all the time. It's a like, classic projection to me. It's uh, uh, I'm just amazed. Yeah, more people more it. people can't see see this, but anyways. Yeah, no, it's it's crazy, and you know, I, I just talked to a uh, she was an accountant. Uh, she's 24 years old, living in Mumbai, India, and, and she said that you know nobody cares about the government here. We we totally ignore what they're doing. Like people are taking precautions or whatever against COVID. She said, but you know, there's there's no nobody like following the government orders or anything. She said like your governments over in the Western cult, cu- countries and culture, you know, talk to you guys like kids. Uh, so that was like a big like yeah. uh, wake up moment that you know people should take that and like why 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 is the government talking to us as we're kids because they think we're peasants and that we need to be taken away all our rights because we don't know what to do with ourselves. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, I, I don't know, Tim, like there's uh, there's so much happening here in Canada right now, you know, with uh, with uh, this whole COVID, you know, kind of manufacturer crisis. There, I believe there's still disease that, you know, attacking people and they might some might die from it. But I think, you know, it's uh, fairly overstated and uh, and totally manipulated with the PCR tests and a, a lot of stuff. But uh, with, you know, going through this and everything that the governments have done, Tim, you know, what are some of the constitutional uh, laws that are being broken, you know, with the government shutting down businesses, destroying, you know, 30, 40, 50% of small businesses, uh, putting people, uh, you know, that are poor uh, into a state that are broker than ever, uh, or forcing them into serve payments that they don't know that they need to pay taxes on, um, and all these things that are happening, you know, w- what is going to come out of this? And, and like, how can we, you know, uh, move forward and actually stop all this stuff uh, before, you, you know, we end up in a totalitarian regime? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, you know, the sad part is I don't think any of these draconian measures are violating our shitty constitution. You know, it's uh, we, we have that the first clause and it is a notwithstanding clause, notwithstanding the public good or something like that. Um, and, and over and over again, our courts have interpreted that as, you know, uh, liberty can be infringed if it serves some public good. And of course that's completely subjective and uh, determined yeah. by experts and science and whatever. Right. So, you know, our constitution is, is a piece of paper. Um, it's, it, it, you know, it, I might as well write something on a napkin. It protects me about as much as the constitution does. Um, the only thing that's going to protect us is uh, enough Canadians who, um, who demand liberty or death and uh, are willing to stand up against the government to do that and make yeah. the government afraid of it. And, um, you know, until we get that, we're, we're going to continually have, uh, you know, have encroachments on our liberty. We, we don't have any protection. Uh, so, you know, I, I see a lot of people out there saying this violates the constitution and uh, well, I mean, that's a, t- that's not a good argument to me. Our constitution is junk. It, you know, they're, uh, how do you know it doesn't violate the constitution? Um, you know, like there's not even property rights in our constitution. So, and it's got a notwithstanding clause. It's got all sorts of escape clauses in it that allow the government to do whatever the hell they want to us. Uh, so the constitution will never bind a government. And, you know, I, I have a lot of people, you know, there, there's groups and I speak to these groups as well. Right. Um, 
I, I irreverently refer to a lot of these people as dimwits, which is not very nice, but, you know, I, I try to contrast them to the midwits that I think are ruining the world, right? These are, midwits are like, follow the science, follow the science. These are people that generally have like a university degree or something like that. They can, they can see how ridiculous some of the things are that these um, anti-maskers say, for example, or something like that. But yeah. Yeah. if it's between the dimwits and the midwits, I'm going with the midwits. You know, they're, they're right, maybe for the wrong reasons, but, you know, but they, 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 they don't know how to argue for liberty. That's the problem. They're not very good at it. They come off looking stupid. They're like, this is not constitutional. It's my constitutional right. Well, no, it's not. Your constitution sucks. And you should know that, um, you know, like you got to find better ways to argue. And I think that's where I think the Libertarian Party has a real role to play is getting a message out. Uh, that is solid, that is based on principles that said, you know, we, we don't like uh, Maxime Bernier's Paul, party, for example, the pop, the people's party of Canada, it's an unfortunate name. Uh, it shares a name with a left-wing populist party in the States called the people's party. Um, so it's going to have some branding issues, but you know, they're fairly good on a lot of things, but you know, the way they word things is wrong. So for example, on climate change, Bernier says there's no climate there's no climate emergency. So we don't need, uh, we don't need climate policies. Well, that to me is a bad argument. To me, or not, the better argument would be if there's climate, if climate catastrophe is going to happen, we need Liberty. Now Liberty is the answer. You don't give away the, the argument at right at the start by saying, yeah, well, if there was an emergency, well, yeah, obviously we have to give away Liberty then. Um, and, and this is how a lot of people argument. So, uh, you know, I think the role of libertarians here is to provide a real principled, solid messaging and on arguments for people. And, you know, I had some guy, um, for example, he called himself a libertarian. Let me just see if I can find this for you. Cause it was, um, I think it's kind of telling in the way different people talk about this. Um, here's yeah, what this guy calls himself a libertarian too. So, you know, yeah, yeah. Right. And, and so here's, here's this guy, his name is Matt Zwolinski. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. I think he's from bleeding heart libertarians. He's I remember he wrote a piece a long time ago that kind of tried to pick apart the NAP. It was pretty weak, I thought. But here's what he tweeted out. He said, lots of libertarians believe that lockdowns are A, immoral restrictions of liberty, and B, unnecessary because COVID has a relatively low fatality rate. Question, how high would the fatality rate have to be before some form of lockdown was permissible? 5%, 10%? Is there any number? And this is the kind of um, thinking that we have to address as libertarians. And, and he, he's thinking about it the wrong way, as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, my response was they're immoral, even at a hundred percent fatality rate. Now you answer this, lots of libertarians in square scare quotes, believe that lockdowns are a moral restrictions of Liberty and B necessary because COVID has a relatively high fatality rate question. How low would the fatality rate have to be before lifting lockdowns? Um, so what we have to do is put these guys on the defensive. We have to take the moral high ground here because we, we continually play defense to them by saying, well, uh, it's not COVID isn't that bad. Therefore the lockdowns aren't, 
aren't needed. No, even if the even if the this was the worst virus you could imagine, the lockdowns are immoral. Uh, I can, you know, we have to take the moral high ground. It is immoral to lock a person down. It is immoral to stop me from going out and getting the the material meat needs to to sustain my family. You know, and I followed him up. I'm like, well, look, I'm a paramedic. How how risky? Under what circumstances do you think the the government can restrict my my liberty to go to work as a paramedic and what, however you answer that question, shouldn't that apply to everyone else? Um, you know, what, what's he going to say? No, healthcare workers shouldn't go to work because the virus is too risky because we might spread it around. I mean, that's true of healthcare workers. It's just as much as the general public, we could spread it around. In fact, we are, if you look at most of the places that have outbreaks, it's in places where healthcare workers are working. Yeah, no, and the, you know, any lockdown whatsoever, you know, if people have common sense, they would uh, actually take their own precautions. If if the virus is very deadly, you know, people yeah. would actually uh, try to make an educated decision on, you know, should I go out today and have the potential of dying if it's 50% or should I stay at home and not work? Uh, that should be up to the individual and, and not right. to government at all to be able to tell because it's uh, it's just devastated the, you know, the lockdowns that they implemented. And you see that in, you know, I don't know if you've seen that in overdoses at all, t- uh, Tim, you know. Yeah. Uh, in Edmonton where you are uh, and then also like suicides and so on. If, if there's like increases there, because that's, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing a huge increase in overdose as substance abuse problems, domestic violence, mental health issues, depression. Um, People are really suffering out there. You know, I had a a young man who was, uh, who fell off the wagon alcoholic and, you know, he was talking about how he was just beside himself in tears. I mean, it broke my heart. Um, listening to this guy because he was just saying like he, he was first of all he was beating himself up so hard because he fell off the wagon but he was like my friend just died of an overdose she was like my support system my mom I can't see my mom she's she's under lockdown over in some other place and is unable to travel and and I just have no one I'm all alone and all I have is myself my dark thoughts and my bottle and like that the, the and it's just one story like that after another uh going on right now out there yeah, and it's, it's just pure evil uh to me what the government is doing and, and i actually have been like hurt by this myself because my uh my um dad died over in norway and in norway they have a 14 day you know quarantine rule and then they have one in canada so they expect people you know to have 28 days out of their you know schedule which they probably don't have money for to be able to go over and you know be able to see your own dad you know and put him in the ground uh and of course in norway it's insane rules you know they try after you to get a, per- after literally you get a permit force to, put him, to put him in the ground yeah you oh, need man. to put him down after six months uh in, in norway and then uh, if you want to spread the ashes, this is the mo- most insane. Uh, you know, I, I kind of remember why I left Norway, but now I'm seeing why I really don't want Canada to become Norway. But in Norway, you got to have an ash spreading permit, for example, and you have to put the ash in the ground. You can't do whatever you want with your relatives. You know, uh, maybe you want to bury them in the, in a flower bed or so, do something beautiful with them. You know, not in a you know, on a, at a graveyard or something like that. So it's uh, you know, in Norway they really are uh, uh, you know really had and they've really been uh, we're really pushing you know in the region legislations and so on that the liberals are really pushing towards and 
you know, heavier taxation are just coming down the line. You know, in Norway, the, the tax rate is 36 percent, uh, uh, you know, just to start with for any income. Uh, and the average, I think almost the average is about 80, 85, 90 percent that goes back to the government at one point uh, you know, in taxation. Same. So, uh, yeah, and, and I, I'm warning that, you know, we're heading towards there, you know, straight straight ahead here in Canada with all this uh, idiotic spending and, and moronic policies from uh, governments, you know, thinking that they could babysit us, uh, you know, is really uh, totally destructive to society. And, and you see that, as you said, you know, with all these people with depression and everything that they're creating uh, yeah. and just to save, you know, uh, whatever uh, with the virus it's it's just insane like are we going to start with like this with uh, you know how about the nine million people that are homeless no that are starving in the world every year sure you know, are we going to go in a lockdown for that you know like it's all that stupid logic that you know the government and, and bureaucrats is putting in here and, and, and implementing right. they're so devastated you know we'd like to see it but now we're really seeing it firsthand right in front of us well, and, and it's it's not just, you know, again, I, I come back, the economic arguments are easy to make how it's like physically destroying people, but less tangible, but equally as almost as devastating to me are the, the mental and psychological things yeah. that are going on, the, the programming and, and what that's going to mean for everything, including economics going forward. Um, you know, the, the, at the same time, we have this, this narrative of a victim culture inculcating it, everything. Um, we, we have people also isolated and, and being atomized and separated, loss of connection. And we know the opposite of addiction is connection, right, with other people. Uh, all these things are coming together, uh, as well as dependence on government and replacing of our family and friends and, and our spouses with uh, the great state. Um, all these things are, are uh, like a perfect storm for for like just a complete mental and psychological breakdown of society you know in my profession of healthcare workers like it's it's driving me nuts when i see uh, fellow healthcare workers um, talking about how they're struggling because and how you guys are forcing me to work so hard and creating all these victims and victimizing me because now I have all these intubated patients and the this stuff that i have to go to work i'm working so hard and i'm getting burnt out and stuff like that I, look, I signed up as a healthcare worker. You know, here's what got me hard. It was burning buildings, massive car wrecks, pandemics. Like, give me the biggest chaos you can so that I can be helpful and, and restore order. I mean, that is why I signed up for this job. And, uh, you know, I, I have seen in my field of first response, emergent, you know, EMS and firefighting, I have seen mental health rates, mental illness increase, suicide increase. At the same time, we're seeing more mental health resources, more physical resources. Uh, you know, it used to be we would be overwhelmed as a general rule on a call. You know, you could understand why someone might get a little shell-shocked from having massive carnage around you and just you and your partner trying to deal with it. Now we have like a huge teams of people that go out. We're not nearly as overwhelmed on these calls. And then after the calls, we have a teams, layers and layers of mental health from peer support to counseling to, you know, critical incident stress debrief and all these things. But the one common thing that, that we're being told through all this mental health support is that we are victims. Our job makes us victims. And so, yeah, if you believe that this job will make you, it makes you a victim, then, then you are a victim. Then, you know, you believe that I've got two daughters that are entering into paramedicine now. 
And I constantly have to remind them. I said, look, this job, you're going to see the, you're going to run into some very challenging things. You're going to see the best and the worst of humanity. And guess what? You're going to deal with it as best you can. And it's going to make you a better version of yourself because you dealt with it because you confronted it. You're going to be better able than your peers to deal with whatever life brings you. Uh, and it's going to improve your mental health. And I genuinely, genuinely believe that it's, it's definitely improved my mental health. It's made me a better version of myself. I, I you know, I don't think I'd be able to deal with, with uh, adversity as well if I didn't have my job, but other people who come into it with this victim mentality mindset, it breaks them down. They suffer from PTSD and anxiety and they can't go to work. And they, and that's because we're inculcating and, and, and that's just my profession. And you spread that over all culture because this is all that's being taught in school now is this victim narrative. Um, and, and then you isolate people from each other and say, well, you can't play sports together. You can't um, hang out at pubs together. You can't uh, do any, you know, just look at the boob tube. We'll feed you all the information you need to know. Happy joy, joy, feeling citizen, uh, you know, everything in the state, nothing outside the state. And like uh, I'm uh, that, that troubles me almost more than anything else uh, out there. Uh, you know, the, the, the economy can crash. I, I feel pretty confident. I can survive that. I can work my way through that. I don't know if I can deal with a whole horde of zombies that are breaking down and eat, trying to eat any signs, of my brains, because I'm showing signs of life and free thinking. Um, that is another story, you know? Yeah, no, it, it totally is, and it's it, it's uh, so destructive. I see that in Norway, it's just taken to another level. The whole victimhood mentality of people, and, and you really seeing that starting to take hold. Uh, you know, anywhere with the state, it's because that's how they feed off of you know being able to control you. Uh, but we're and getting close to the end here, Tim. Uh, do you have any other questions or things that you would like to ask or? Uh... I didn't know if you're uh, no, I mean, I would just say, look, if you, if you're a libertarian out there and, um, you know, you're con as concerned as, as I am, uh, you, you can get involved and, uh, look, I, I'm, I'm a bit of a pessimist and maybe even a cynic when it comes to the idea that we can affect change. I don't know if we can, uh, but I do know, you know, I, I go back to Albert J. Knox essay from the thirties, Isaiah's job. Um, and you know, it, it Ron Paul has referenced this article numerous times when he talks about why he does what he does. And he talks about the remnant. And Isaiah said, look, God, you're telling me to go out there and preach your, your word and warn people of the impending disaster. And nobody, absolutely nobody's listening to me. I'm not changing anyone's mind. I'm not affecting any change out there. Uh, why are you doing this? Like, why are you having me do this if I'm not going to be any good? And God tells him, look, your job isn't to change the course of history here. It's not to change people's minds. It's simply to preach to the remnant. There are people out there that, that understand and will listen and you're, you're preaching to them because those are the people that are going to rebuild things uh, after the collapse, after everything yeah. falls apart. So if nothing else, even if you don't believe you can affect change, well, get out there and preach to the remnant. Because one of the, the, the things that I've found as I've done this for the last few years, traveling across, you know, well, across the world really, but across Canada is that everywhere I go, you know, fellow liberty lovers come out of the woodwork and they meet up in pubs and they, they, they look around and they're like, well, there's more libertarians here. I didn't, I thought I was the only one in town. And when I leave, there's a group of libertarians that has having regular meetups and there's a group of people that have 
each other's backs when things go south. And so, you know, you, you don't know what kind of positive unintended consequences come from you standing on that stage and preaching the truth, even though your knees are, are shaking and knocking and your, your voice is shaking. Um, and, and so even if you can't change the government, even if you can't change culture, even if everything we're doing is futile when it comes to those goals, there are other fringe positive unintended consequences that might be even more important than those goals that are happening right now that are going to help us uh, withstand every, every, all the adversity that's coming our way. And uh, so that's my, I, I guess, the last message I'll have to people is, uh, you know, uh, find those people. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the, the Libertarian Party, but I do think the Libertarian Party is a good place to meet people, to network, and and to stand on a stage and 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 reach other people that are out there in the audience that are just waiting to hear your message. Um, so if that's your cup of tea, do that. And if not, I mean, just be a support person or, or even just come for the book club aspect of it. There's nothing wrong with, with having a libertarian book club, uh, you know, either uh, people deride it quite often, but um, you know, at the end of the day, you're networking with people and you're spreading ideas and, and you're, you're bolstering your arguments and making yourself a more effective communicator. So uh, just get involved and get out there and, and don't let the bastards get you down. No, exactly. You know, it's such an important thing to be involved and be able to you know uh, put a message out there meet people uh, and so on uh so it, it's just uh, you know detrimental to us that we we just need to do those things you know the, what me and tim do uh, tim pichotu here at you know the tim and john show we have you know guests on and so on try to get the message out and then we it, try to network you know try to work with local i try to work with local activists you know getting them uh, to really stand up because we're having uh, potentially a big uh, thing happening here. I'm not going to say the date yet because I don't want the government to hear anything uh, of what's going on. So we'll, we'll see what's going to come out of that. But uh, Tim Pichot, uh, do you have any last uh, words or thoughts before we uh, call it a day? No, I mean, I think I really like what, you know, the other Tim is up to in, in Canada over there. You know, certainly wish we had somebody like him at the head of our party. And I did try. I mean, I spent like 30 hours <laughs> trying to become a delegate and drove down to Tucson. And then Ernie's car flatted on the way back and had to change his tire and then had to deal with all the bullshit going through all these Zoom call, nine hour Zoom call in order to get a uh, in order to set it a, a, an agenda for the meeting. And, you know, that was a lot of fun and maybe never want to do a libertarian party function ever again. But, uh, you know, I did try. And so, uh, <laughs> and, and, and one thing that Nick Starwark, you know, did tell me uh, that I agreed with was that, you know, the libertarian party is made up of whoever shows up. And so, you know, I decided that yeah. I would show up and wow. try to make sure that I voted him out of there and he didn't run and he got his henchman in there instead. But, you know, I tried. And so, you know, ideally, I think my, time is better spent, uh, you know, doing, doing this and having this sort of soapbox and, you know, having yeah. this make it on world alternative media and affecting people that way. But, you know, it is important that people, and it doesn't take that many people. I mean, you literally get what 450 people in America, you know, can yeah. change the entire course of who's going to be representing the person at the party. And so for me, it's, it yeah. wasn't about, you know, the libertarian party is going to go out there and win. And for you, it's not that the libertarian is going to party, you know, it's going to go out there and win, but it's about, you know, reclaiming what it means to be libertarian reclaim because people now think of it's, you know, basically just like the, uh, you know, pretty much like an extension of the democratic party, which is also mm. sort of like what the Republican party is too. I mean, might as well be the democratic party light, but you know, at the end of the day, it's who shows up and the people that are showing up are the country club libertarian people that are just in their own little echo chamber. And so, you know, if we, you know, have, 
a few hundred people go and hijack the whole thing. It's game over, yeah. and then we can actually get real hardcore messaging out there. Maybe the messaging is that the whole thing's BS, but we need to be out there calling it BS. Need to be out there, you know, not you know trying to be friends with Joe Biden like uh, you know like the, like the current heads of at least in America you know are trying to do and playing nice. It's not about playing nice, you know. Our they want to basically you know rape and enslave our grandchildren and shoot them up with pharmaceutical drugs and make them slaves. I'm not going to be nice about that. And so I'm, I'm glad to see that you're not nice about that over there. I mean, it's just our, our nice guys, so at least, you know, yeah, no, well, you know, Tim, so at least. <laughs> Tim, you know, that Tim, Tim uh, if I'm not mistaken, didn't you challenge Justin Trudeau to a boxing fight at one point? Yeah, yeah, I was, uh, I, well, I challenged him a couple times. I challenged him to an MMA match first and his security escorted me away. But then I, then I actually had a promoter um, in Calgary reach out to me and say, hey, we're trying to put together a charity box. We put on an annual charity boxing match, you know, 2,000 people. We're trying to get Trudeau to box in it. Would you be willing to be his uh, opponent? And I'm like, hell yeah. So I started training. And of course, Trudeau didn't show. I ended up having to fight a prison guard instead. And that wasn't very much fun. But, uh, you know, it, yeah, I, I would I would love the opportunity. I'm certainly uh, not afraid of a fight. And uh, Trudeau, yeah, I'm, we'll even let you show up in blackface if you want. Because we know. Yeah, absolutely. Thing. I mean, you know, one of the. I'm going to wipe that blackface right off you, buddy. <laughs> yes. It'll be nothing but red face at the end of it. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Hey, Tim. That's gonna make yeah, all. Go the, that's gonna make all the headlines. <laughs> I'm gonna wipe that black face right off. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, no, it's definitely a you know, pleasure, yeah. pleasure having you on. We'll cut the stream. And for the guy, for the people listening out there, if you guys want to get these episodes yeah. first, and we're gonna cut this off YouTube, but then it's you know, if you want to get it first, you gotta to go to timandjohnshow.com, sign up for the uh, for for our email list, and then that way you guys get all the information first. Because a lot of these, you know, the best videos are not even on YouTube anymore. We had to proactively, you know, cut them down. So our episode with Melody Krell about the Pacer family, and maybe even the Richard Grove one isn't fully up there. And a lot of the, you know, I'm not even sure if the full. Jerry Griffin's one is up there. So a lot of the hardcore stuff is not even on YouTube. So if you guys want to see the best stuff, make sure you follow us in other places. Go to timandjohnshow.com. There's a, a watch section where you can watch, see all the places to watch us, a listen section to see all the podcast links. But anyways, you guys head there. You get all the, all the goodies first. You get on our email list. And then that way, you know, we can help beat the censors because, you know, I re used to reach, you know, 30, 40, 50,000 people a post on Facebook. And now it reaches like three people. And then, you know, same, th you know, YouTube, you know, John's, all John's videos used to reach, you know, 50, 60,000 people. And then it started reaching, you know, 2,000 before they kicked us off and, and, now, yep, and now josh bye bye. and yep. now josh is you know very strong on uh, on bit shoot with getting uh you know close to ten thousand views every video and uh he's making his way back here i'm gonna pick him up tonight so uh as long as he somehow made it he's you know had to go through a lot of trials and tribulations <laughs> yeah, well, making yeah. it here so i'm sure that'll be a good show seeing that but thank you tim so much for for joining us uh today yeah and, uh, and just one last uh and just one last thing, Tim, I, I don't know if you told us, but where can people find everything that you uh, do or say or talk about? Sure. Well, our, our party is libertarian.ca. Um, and you can find my personal blog uh, at timmoen.net. Um, and uh, you can I have a podcast as well, uh, The Liberty Experts. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm interviewing people there and I have a, a co-host as well. And we get into debates. He's an objectivist. I'm an ANCAP. So we have some lively debates sometimes. Um, I, I just interviewed actually Angela McArdle today on the podcast that should drop on Thursday. Um, and, and she's very interesting. I'm very encouraged to hear, um, what the Mises caucus, Tom Woods, Dave Smith are doing to kind of, uh, 
take over the party, so to speak, and and uh, kind of the, the, their thinking lines up exactly with mine. So it'll be Are interesting to see. Heiss? Are you familiar with, with who Michael Heiss? Uh, you, you bet. Yeah, I'm, I know Michael Heiss. Yeah, one of the hardest working libertarians out there, yeah. from what I can tell. And so I'm I'm very impressed with uh, what he's doing in the Mises Caucus. And so uh, you could say that the the U.S. Mises Caucuses are basically already taken over Canada uh, because uh, I'm taking all their advice to heart and <laughs> trying to, to live up to their now standard of take over America, messaging. So <laughs> yeah, now you're taking over America. So I'm, I'm rooting for you guys down there. I, I think some positive things are going to happen. So thanks, guys. Thank you very yeah. much, Tim. And thank you Pleasure. for all the, all the viewers and listeners out there. Peace.